this week on the Backtable Podcast. There's all kinds of exciting things that we're all learning about in, in the Venus field, much like CLTI, you know, there's new stuff. And so part of it that doesn't have to do with pelvic pain is like looking at Venus inflow. What is adequate inflow in a post-thrombotic limb to keep a stent open? We don't know, but there's got to be an answer. And we're probably going to figure it out with ultrasound is what my thought is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Boston Scientific's Alluvia Drug-Eluting Peripheral Stent is a purpose-built stent platform with a polymer specifically designed to treat SFA disease. In two head-to-head trials, Olivia demonstrated superior clinical outcomes compared to other therapies and is setting a new standard of care in SFA stenting. To learn more about how Olivia can help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com slash Olivia. That's E-L-U-V-I-A from Boston Scientific. At Medtronic, they take deep venous disease and patients' quality of life seriously. That's why they've committed to help you treat patients with the Abre Venus self-expanding stent system. Risks include pain, myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolus, and restenosis of the stented segment. Learn more at www.medtronic.com forward slash Venus. And now back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast. My name is Jill Somerset, and I am your host today. This is a podcast on a ultrasound series that I've been working on with incredible physicians. And this particular podcast is on advanced pelvic venous disorders and really the utility of vascular ultrasound. And I'm so pleased to be here with the world-renowned Dr. Kathleen Gibson. She is a vascular surgeon at Lake Washington Vascular in Seattle, Washington, and the current president of AVLS. So welcome, Dr. Gibson. Thank you, Jill. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm very excited to talk about this topic that I know we're both quite passionate about. Yes, definitely. Uh, before we get started, I just want to share a, a funny little story. We were just in Cancun together for a vascular meeting, and I actually didn't know you were going to be there. And at all vascular meetings, I always sit in the front row, and I'm sitting there. I was a little late to the session, and I look down, and I see these beautiful red shoes. And I was like, man, I love those <laughs> shoes. And I kind of look up and I thought, oh my gosh, it's you. Dr. Gibson is here. So that was really fun. It was great to connect. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. I do love good shoes because as I always say, shoes never judge you. Your pants judge you. Other articles of clothing will judge you, especially coming through the pandemic and all that. And with some of us getting new hobbies like making pizza or whatnot, that your shoes never judge you usually as an adult, so you can have good shoes. That's great advice. (laughs) Uh, So I'd like to just start the podcast by asking you to kind of briefly describe your career and really what led your interest to deep venous disease, well, venous disease in general. You are really an incredible physician. You talk all around the world. So maybe tell us a little bit about your history. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I finished my vascular training in 2001, and believe it or not, uh, at the time I was the first woman to finish a vascular surgery fellowship at the University of Washington. So it seems like there should have been more before me, but I was the first one. And most of our training in the 90s really, frankly, had very little to do with venous disease. And in fact, actually, I think 
Still, most training programs in interventional radiology and vascular surgery are very arterial focused, as was I when I trained. So I came out in practice, and I'm in private practice, although I do do a lot of clinical research, kind of was taught how to do that at the university. But I realized that, um, and it is true, that there are more patients that have venous disease that you will see than arterial disease. And venous disease, you know, we know that about 100,000 people at least die every year of pulmonary emboli, whereas less than 10,000 people die every year of a ruptured aneurysm of the aorta. So it's a very important area and one that we probably don't get enough training in. And so I became quite passionate about venous disease because it was a lot of what I was seeing in practice. In terms of pelvic venous disease, this is an area where we're really kind of on a frontier where we're learning more and more all the time because it hasn't been well understood and well studied. We haven't had a good language about it where we can speak about the same kind of patients. And I became interested in this because I saw women that would come to see me with vulvar varicose veins. That was kind of my first hint of this, that it had maybe their saphenous veins treated elsewhere. And they're like, I am no better. And you realize, okay, they didn't have proper reflex sourcing of where the problem was coming from. And we didn't, quote, look upstairs routinely. And so I think that we're learning more and more about recognition of this problem and how many women um, in particular have suffered with pain from pelvic venous disorders because they didn't know who to go to or they were discounted. That it's, you had children, it's normal for your pelvis to hurt. This is how it is. And so I think that that was really kind of spurred my interest in learning more here. And then there was a group of us, including one of my mentors, Mark Meisner, started with the SIR Foundation and then the AVLS. We developed the SVP classification. So, you know, first off, if you're going to study something and learn about it, you have to define it. You have to have a definition. And up until having a classification system... We didn't have a definition of what was going on with patients. So the SVP classification stands for symptoms, varicosities, and pathophysiology or pathology. And it's not a grading scale, but it puts patients in like bins. So we can say, okay, this person is an S2V2 pathology left ovarian vein refluxing non-thrombotic. So what that tells me, this classification, is this woman has symptoms in her pelvis she has varices in her pelvis, and the source of the problem is a refluxing left ovarian vein. Now, you could have an S2V2 left common iliac vein obstruction thrombotic after a DVT, pelvic pain, varices or collaterals in the pelvis, and an obstruction from a blood clot. That person may also have pelvic pain, but it's going to be completely different approach than the first person I mentioned. So that was kind of long answer to your question, but, you know, we're at least on a pathway now where we can have a language where we're talking about these patients and put them kind of into similar groups because we have different types of pathology that can cause the same symptoms and really helps us and it helps you kind of someone imaging to be able to really communicate well what the cause of the problem is or sometimes there's multiple problems. Yeah, a lot of work has gone into this and I applaud all of you for making progress. How well do you think that this language is being adopted worldwide? I think it's starting to be adopted, and it is currently had simultaneous publication in the Journal of Vascular Surgery and in Phlebology in English. 
It's been published in Spanish, and it's in a Spanish journal. It's been published in French. It's in the main French phlebology journal. We're currently having it translated right now into Japanese. You know, so basically we got some grant funding from industry to do these translations. And, you know, certainly if there's other groups that say, okay, we want this translated into our language, we can look into funds for doing that. Because when we published in JVS in Phlebology, they gave us carte blanche to publish it, disseminate it wherever we want. There is an app. The app is fantastic. So I, I encourage everyone to get this app. I use it even though I have this SVP business memorized. I use it because we're also collecting data. It's de-identified patient data, but the SVP classifier is for Android and iPhone. And basically, you can put in where your patient's symptoms are, where the varices are, what the imaging shows, and it will tell you what their SVP classification is. And then again, we are collecting that data to say, okay, what's the prevalence of this? So I think that it's getting disseminated more. There's also a workbook that's available either through the American Venus Forum or the AVLS that you can get CME for, where there's, I think, 12 different clinical scenarios. It lists patient cases, goes through them, and all the imaging, and you can walk through it, and you classify it, and then it gives you feedback about what you did right or wrong. And again, you can get CME for that. So I hope that that will help. I'm trying, and it takes some effort to put on my slides whenever I present. That's my goal for next year is always have the SVP class down at the bottom so people can get used to seeing it, just like we do with SEEP. I mean, right now, you would never hear a varicose vein talk where you're talking about a group of patients without SEEP. You wouldn't. You know, you'd be like, okay, what are these patients? Are they C2? Do they just have varices? Are they C6? Are these ulcer patients? It's very important to know that. So I'm hoping that it will become a more common and accepted language, but we'll see. This sort of thing helps too, right? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. And, you know, from a vascular technologist standpoint, right now I'm the chair of the annual meeting for SVU, and I work closely with Sarah, who is a big part of AVLS, and we have a section dedicated to AVLS in the SVU meeting. But how important is this information to get to vascular techs when they do an examination and start thinking about this new language and classification. Yeah, no, I think the other reason besides that it, it is something we can use as a research tool and in presentations is it actually helps you organize your thoughts, your thinking as you're thinking about scanning, right? It kind of, you can go, okay, where am I seeing pathology? What is it? Where are their varices? And how do I explain them? You know, so the first thing, if you're looking around the uterus and you're seeing a bunch of veins, you know, that are dilated and you don't know what it is. So is it that this is rapid flow across the pelvis because you have some obstruction or is it just kind of sitting there hanging out? And then you can kind of put this together. OK, I'm seeing this unidirectional flow across big dilated right ovarian vein. It's not refluxing, but it's big. That always makes me think that there's an obstruction, right? Because the right ovarian vein shouldn't be big and going the correct direction unless it's an exit pathway. So it really kind of think it helps you organize your thoughts. And one thing that I love so much about RVTs and what you do in vascular ultrasound is you really are detectives. I think so much more so than a lot of other people that are doing ultrasound imaging is you're looking at flow, you're looking at B mode, and you're putting these pieces together to tell a story. Um, and then you're giving that story to someone who's going to do something with it. And it's really important. 
completely different topic, but you probably will see this as how important these pieces are together. Like I have had two patients this week, arterial, where everyone's gotten excited about monophasic flow. And you look and it's like, okay, this is hyperemia because they have cellulitis, you know, and the patient's got normal pulses. So kind of putting together, we don't see an obstructive lesion and you have this monophasic, meaning that you've got all this flow in diastole. So, I mean, this is off topic, but putting those pieces together is something that RVTs are good at doing and very important. I couldn't agree more. And I think, uh, as you know, my passion for CLTI is very strong. I think it is, we translate that over to the venous world is we have to start thinking about patients just like you do. We have to think like a surgeon, think like an interventionalist so we can start answering all of those clinical questions. So I think it's really important that we know this information as well. So speaking of uh, vascular technology, yeah, can you kind of describe to the audience the setting of your practice and how you integrate with your vascular lab technologists? Yeah, so I'm a private practice, rare bird, and our RVTs are employed by our clinic, so they, they don't go to the hospital. We're outpatient. They're very integrated. Up until COVID, for example, we always had them in with us in all of our uh, superficial vein procedures that we did. But uh, with COVID, we lost some of our staff. They didn't die. I didn't mean lost that way. They went other places, did other things. So we have been now selectively using them. They're not in all of our cases, which makes it a lot less fun, frankly, because I love working with RVTs. And why that was really helpful, too, I think, from their standpoint, is they learned how to scan better. They learned what we were doing. We also have had our RVTs sometimes assist us because we have an outpatient, an OBL outpatient lab with dialysis access angioplasty because they can do flow volume right away for us. Uh, so when we can get them in for that, that's awesome. In fact, actually, we've had times where we've done interventions with no contrast, where we do it all by ultrasound. Yeah, balloon angioplasty. I mean, because really, actually, if you can get right through, you get more information from ultrasound than you do from the angiogram. They're not in with us for doing angioplasty and things like that on arteries for CLTI. I wish they were, wish we could do that, but we don't have that ability. And for our deep venous cases or pelvic embolization and things like that, I don't have them there. But oftentimes, if I'm doing a venous malformation that's peripheral, I have the RVTs helping me. And I don't do arterial venous, you know, that's done in the hospital, but in the outpatient, we do venous malformations also. And they're extremely helpful for that. That's awesome. You know, I know some of your techs and they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, we've got some really good ones and we have some new ones that are very promising. In terms of pelvic venous disease, when we knew we really wanted to learn more in this area, two of my techs, I think over 10 years ago, went and spent, I think, three days it was with Nikos Labropoulos at Stony Brook and really learned his technique for pelvic venous scanning. And then since then, we've disseminated that one of those two is still with us, the head of our lab, Sarah Brisson. And she's done an excellent job of handpicking who's going to learn it because it is harder. Um, it's a double black diamond. And other than like a really, really obese person where you're trying to look at renal arteries and mesenterics, it's, it's challenging. The good news is with it is most of the women that we see that have pelvic pain tend to be thin, which makes it easier. But it takes patience and it's dynamic. You Just like with varicose veins that you don't get the same picture if you have someone laying flat as if they're in reverse Schindelberg or standing, it's a dynamic exam where you have to really work with the patient 
You know, we're learning more in the last couple of years, for example, for nivel lesions, non-iliac vein thrombosis or non-thrombotic lesions, the positioning is really important. So if you have a thin patient supine that's dehydrated, they're all going to have what looks like a compression lesion. But if you stand them up or turn them, that'll go away. And what, what I really want to know as a surgeon is, do you see a fixed narrowing? Do you see a velocity ratio that stays abnormal when you turn them in the right lateral decubitus or stand them? That would imply to me that the vein is scarred or webbed or has an outflow problem that is there all the time. We do the same thing with the renal vein. We turn the patient into the right lateral decubitus position and look and see what the velocity does in different positions. But all of this takes time and it takes training and you can't just take a new tech and say, okay, go do this. They need to learn. The other really important thing I think for pelvic venous scanning is to look at the patient first in their underwear standing up and look for pelvic escape points that are going to help you later to say, okay, this looks like, you know, it's gluteal. I'm going to see some internal iliac vein issues or nothing gluteal. Everything's anterior. That's more likely to be the ovarian veins. So you're going to get a hint kind of looking at them and also saying, okay, where are your symptoms? You know, if they say, oh, I've got this big swollen left leg with all this pain in my leg, you're going to be thinking compression. I've got flank pain. You know, you're going to be really looking at the kidney. So, and again, that's where SVP comes in too, is you can kind of think about and asking the patient, where is your pain? And that gets you the S portion that you know where your focus is going to be. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time with Dr. Tessa at Peace Health doing pelvic venous work and now with Dr. Constantino doing pelvic work too. And we, we talk a lot about cases. So for the listeners out there, if they have technologists that they want to insert this test into their practice, what's your recommendation? Like, where can we go get this training? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's a couple ways you can do that. It's not something I think that you can read and learn how to do. You have to actually do hands-on, I believe. So, you know, some meetings like SVU or AVLS, uh, I know AVLS always has workshops. SVU does too at times. I think you're doing like where you have patients that come. I think that joining a society is imperative for anybody postgraduate in whatever field they're in, you know, and keeping up and learning that way. Uh, you can have people go away for a few days, like my text it at different areas. They'll come and, and have a program where they learn that. And there's, so there's some industry that will help with that, that sponsor those kind of things. So some of the ultrasound companies, machine companies um, will have training programs. And read about it before you go. There's a really good paper that Labropoulos and Meisner wrote that was in Phlebology that shows step-by-step how-to. Uh, now, the one thing that that paper doesn't have, which I think all of us have been starting to do more, is information about positioning, but it gives you the basics. Yeah, I also think going to these meetings, you create these connections. And really, it's someone to call and say, am I doing this right? Or there's some follow-up questions. I, I think it's huge to connect with experts around the world and check yourself and get your network in place. So speaking of positions, what is your thought then about like Valsalva, you know, for nivel or not, you know, fixed lesion or not besides position? You know, Valsalva makes a difference too, I think, you know, and, and breath hold and seeing kind of how the flow changes. You know, what I don't know is what is more important, but I think positioning is probably one of the most important things over Valsalva because Valsalva could be very different. Some patients Valsalva well and some don't. When I am doing an intervention, I also position them with the IVUS catheter in place. 
And what I do is I'd like to do this with very light sedation. If I've decided I'm going to place a stent, then we sedate them. Otherwise, they get very light sedation for access, and I want them to be able to cooperate. And what we tend to do, because we're usually going in from the left side, is we put a big bump under their hip and turn them once I find the area of concern. And then I will have them talk, watch kind of how the vein changes as they talk. They can sing. You can see it change. Or say, I'm going to have you take a deep breath like you're going to blow out a birthday candle, bear down really hard, and then release. And watch kind of what the vein does from a dynamic standpoint. And the reason why you don't want to sedate them is people can't do that. If, I mean, if you've given them a bunch of Versed, they won't breathe deep, they won't cooperate, and you can't tell. But I think all of those things are helpful. And what we don't know is how this correlates. You know, we used to have this number, okay, velocity ratio over 2.5 correlates with this. Well, okay, what does the velocity ratio when they're turned correlate with? You know, if you see no increase in velocity, if the vein's wide open, you know, what do you do if they had a uh, high velocity ratio when they're supine? So we don't have anything validated, but you know, I think what we do know is when the new venous stents came out, there was a huge enthusiasm and uptick in their use, which is good and bad, because there's been undertreatment of patients that really needed stents, and then there's been overtreatment. And overtreatment in medicine can either be honest mistake, lack of education, or can be financially driven. If it's financially driven, education is not going to fix the problem. But if it's educationally driven, it can really help. And I would like to think that most of it's that, that we get excited that we've got these new stents that are easier to use. And the danger of inappropriate treatment for a nivel lesion is stent migration. One of the worst things that can happen is you take somebody who may be fairly healthy otherwise with leg swelling, some pelvic pain, and then you give them a life-threatening condition. So, you know, I think that really good care in figuring this out about what do we do with positioning and what's a real nibble is something that we're still trying to work out and learn. So then do you feel like for the preoperative ultrasound that you're getting closer to kind of figuring it out with some positional changes? Yes. Good. Good. Yes. Yes. So yes. Yeah. Yes. I think we've really lacked in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, you know, it used to be like five years ago, a lot of these people would go on to venography and IVIS, and we'd be like, wow, you know, they had that lesion, but it just doesn't look that bad today. Or I'm not sure, but we had that before. So if I did take somebody and Sarah would tell me, you know, well, they were really tight when they were supine. When I turned them, it went away completely. I'm first off, maybe not going to take them at all to do further imaging. Second, if it's kind of borderline, I am going to work really hard with my positioning of the IVIS tricks to see but if she says, okay, no, they've got a fixed lesion, reversal of flow in the internal iliac, I can see collaterals, then it's going to be something that correlates pretty well, I think, with what I see when I do venography. Gosh, I love this. I mean, it sounds like you rely on your vascular techs a lot in your decision making. I do. I do. So do you have anything in place then with your group? Do you guys do like a once a month or once a quarter QA? I, I think it's so important to review cases and collaborate and teach? Quarterly. Yeah, we have a quarterly QA. Now, because of my passion, uh, I wish that it could be pelvic disease every time. It's not, <laughs> you know, I mean, we do like, okay, <sighs> what about this renal scan? What about this carotid? So it, it's not always pelvic veins all the time. But yes, we do do that. 
And then we haven't published anything, but we're trying to, with kind of all of our free time, see whether we can correlate some of the data that we have, you know, with what I find and what Sarah's finding in our lab. I know Nikos Labropoulos is like way ahead of us on that. He's like already collecting data, of course, and we'll be publishing things far before I would be able to. But, you know, I think we need to stay tuned to that. And I think that what we're finding and thinking seems to be like what they're finding in their practice, too, which is reassuring when you find other practices that say, yeah, this is what we think as well. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. How often do you get second opinions? I work with Dr. Constantino and I scanned a patient who was positive and this challenging patient. And I think it's pretty great that as an interventional radiologist, she can call you and, you know, you can talk about the patient. And and at the end, she ended up just sending the patient to you, which is great collaborative care. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that one thing that has made second opinions more common for me, you know, part of it is I think that every year that I do this and talk, more people know that I do it and send them to me. But part of it also, I think, with the pandemic, with so much telemedicine, that patients and providers are used to more video type collaboration. So it's pretty common that I will have someone who will call me and want to talk and then they can by Zoom or whatever, share images um, or they've sent them to me ahead of time and we can have a conversation like this about what to do. And then oftentimes, if the patient's insurance allows it, because there can be different things with different insurance, rather than them coming up to see me from out of state, our first contact can be telemedicine. And I can say, okay, I've talked to your other doctor. I want to hear about your symptoms. I want to see whether you think it would be worthwhile for you to come to the Seattle area for me to see you. And then if the answer is yes, then what we try to do is try to stack everything as much as insurance will let us. Meaning, if I want to do another scan in our lab, we do it the day that I see the patient and we maybe have held some time for an intervention later in the week so that they have kind of one trip and then the post-op after. And then we do some of the post-op follow-up in telemedicine or they can go back to see the doctor that referred them to me for help. And I've done that for years with patients in Alaska and I'm doing it now more with some of the other nearby states. Yeah, nice. Can you talk about your workup algorithm of a patient? So you're going to start with ultrasound, then what? Yeah, either the patients found me themselves, or they've been referred, or they've come in for varicose veins in the leg, and it's, oh, by the way, and you see the correct pattern, meaning it's atypical for a saphenous pattern, or they've had a scan, I'm like, oh, look at where this is coming from. Usually I can tell on physical exam ahead of that. Usually I'm not surprised. But then I query the patient, okay, are you having pelvic pain? Do you have vulvar pain? And if it's a pelvic source into the leg and they don't have pelvic pain, other than my own curiosity, I do not need to do a pelvic workup because I will not treat them from above if they have no pelvic symptoms. I just tell them, look, I know what we would find if we looked up there. We'd find something. But since that area is not bothering you, we're just going to deal with the legs, knowing that you could have recurrence because we didn't treat the source. but you know, I'm, I'm a very focused on treat the patient, not the imaging. So first I determine, okay, do they need an ultrasound? The ultrasound they always get first. Then the other things that are really important if they've got pelvic pain is how old are you and have you seen a gynecologist? Because we do not want to forget that even though we're venous specialists, endometriosis is actually the most common cause of pelvic pain in women in the United States. And you can have both. You could have endometriosis and pelvic varices. 
And I don't want to be the person that, you know, if you're a carpenter, you just use the hammer you're used to. So you want to make sure that the gynecologist has seen them, that there's not other things to worry about. Someone with new onset pelvic pain postmenopause is very important because we don't want to miss a malignancy, right? And so if they've seen a gynecologist, they're not postmenopausal, they're not a teenager where, you know, I'm worried about something else going on and they have been cleared, then I don't always use cross-sectional imaging because I think our ultrasound's good enough. If there's something else I'm worried about, if they've got a, you know, history of pelvic mass, anything else, then cross-sectional imaging, I think, would be in order or in a postmenopausal women where this just picture doesn't fit. You want to rule out any kind of pathology like a cancer. In our hospital, we usually use CT venography because I cannot get good timing on my MR venography here. Maybe I haven't given enough effort. But I've seen other places with beautiful MRVs. And of course, then there's uh, less radiation to the patient. So I think for cross-sectional imaging, if that's going to occur, it should be specific to what the regional excellence is, the expertise of the area. But not everyone in our practice gets cross-sectional imaging. In fact, most of the women of childbearing age don't usually, but I've had them cleared by a gynecologist. The other thing to be aware of in the workup that I talked to them about is, you know, pelvic floor disorders. And I work with pelvic floor physical therapists more and more because Myofascial pain is also something that patients have often after having children. And I do think that having pelvic venous pain can lead to myofascial pain. So I think having a pelvic floor physical therapist in your Rolodex, we don't have Rolodexes anymore, but in your contact list is important because you also may need to use them after you're done intervening. Okay, so they get an ultrasound. I've assessed them. You then meet with the patient again and you decide, are your symptoms bad enough that you would consider an intervention, which could be if you have an obstruction, a stent. If you do not have obstruction, a embolization. And I think that for most patients, the embolization, pretty easy decision if they've got a lot of pain because there's really not a lot of complication in my opinion, you know, coil embolization is pretty rare if you size your coils right. Whereas with stenting, I think that there's a little bit more to think about than embolization. But patient has to clearly feel that the symptoms they have are impacting their quality of life. It's not just, okay, I've got a puffy ankle or I've got spider veins. I've heard of people getting things done for spider veins in the pelvis and like makes no sense. The other thing to be aware of when you're talking to patients is a lot of these women, particularly with a more posterior escape pattern, have hemorrhoids as well. And as we know, the venous drainage of the rectum is twofold. It's both portal and through the internal iliac veins. So I have had people that have had improvement when I've treated them from above with their hemorrhoids, but you can't guarantee that at all because, you know, we're not treating the portal drainage, right? Uh, so you have to be really careful when you're counseling patients about expectations. That's great. Thank you for describing all of that. So what about postoperatively? How are you following these patients? Yeah, so if they get stents, they get a ultrasound pretty early in the postoperative period, usually in the first month or so. We want to look at the stent, make sure it's okay. And then with stents, the nivel lesions, uh, we check them every six months for the first couple years and then annually. And you have to wonder, when do we stop doing it annually? Because there's no recommendations out there. We kind of do it annually until the patient says, look, I don't want to see you annually. And then I kind of stretch it out. 
The post-thrombotics, I really like to keep them close, right? I don't like to free-range them because I've had, you know, like at Christmas Eve last year, I had a gal with an iliofemoral DVT that I had done. I stented her 2016 for an ilio post-thrombotic, and she got off a of follow-up somehow. Primary care told her she didn't need anticoagulation anymore, even though she's factor V Leiden. And then uh, she had bunion surgery and they didn't use any prophylaxis and lo and behold, everything clots, right? And so that's why I kind of like to keep my post-thrombotics, you know, at least every six months, the first few years, and then annually. They should come in, have an anticoagulation refresher. This is why we're doing this. And I don't like to lose those patients. I like to keep them forever because I want them to understand why I'm keeping them forever. The ovarian veins, um, we've scanned them before. I don't know whether it's necessary because I, I haven't had one that's been open ever. So that's not a routine part. It's more of a clinical, how are you doing? So I see them at one to two weeks just to make sure everything went okay. And then for those that are still having menses, I like to see them after three menstrual cycles to see the results of what we did. So, and then at that three-month visit, I decide when other visits may be. If they're great, fine, I may release them. If they're not all the way better, I may say, okay, I want to see you back after another period of time. But we don't do routine imaging on embolization patients unless something new comes up. It's very symptom-driven for them. Okay, I have to admit, I'm drinking my tea on a Saturday afternoon, and I could listen to you talk all day long. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I love it. You're just full of all of this ex exceptional information. And I, I hope vascular technologists listen to this podcast because you provide such valuable insight to a you know, maybe sometimes is missing on the vascular ultrasound side. So I, I also want to applaud you for speaking at SVU and being engaging and, and supporting your techs. I think uh, we need more of it. I think we're getting more of it in the arterial world, but having more of it in the venous world is certainly needed, I think, especially for pelvic venous disorders where there's, in my experience, I feel like there's a big gap of testing, and that's certainly an area that I think ultrasound can advance, you know, for more techs to do it as well. Yeah, no, I, I think all techs should be in the SVU. I mean, I think that that's important. And then any lab should see, because you can't have everybody go to the meeting because then nobody's there working. But, you know, if somebody should try to go, if you can, every year and then bring back all that knowledge to everyone else. And then I'm going to make a plug for the AVLS because I'm president. Yes. We have a, we have an ultrasound section, and Linda Antonucci is the chair right now, but it's been quite active. And in the past year, we've had the most growth in membership in our non-physician members. So RVTs, therapists, ARNPs, PAs has been our biggest growth. And this next September, the meeting is a, the UIP meeting. So UIP is like the Olympics of vein meeting. So all the vein organizations that our societies in the world come together for an annual Congress. So it's a really big meeting. We're going to have, I think, a really healthy, robust ultrasound section, and that's in Miami in September. So I would love to see whoever is listening to this podcast. You know, it's going to be fun. Who doesn't like Cuban food or being in Florida? So I, I really hope that people will come to that meeting as well. And we could use more RVTs. I mean, we've had a lot join recently, but we, I think, have a really good group of people. There is a Scanning for Pelvic Venous Disorders book that has been put out. Linda Andanucci is one of the authors. She's not the... Donna Kelly is the main author. And that's available, I think, on Amazon and also at the AVLS on their 
side, I think it may be discounted there even. It's a great book. It's a great book. I have it and it's got pictures in it. So, you know, there's a lot of people, myself, Jill, other folks that like to teach, like to increase enthusiasm. And what I want RBTs to realize is what they do is so important to the patients. And I think that, again, more than any other group of people that image, you make such a difference. I mean, I I don't want to put down CT techs or MRI techs, but they're not doing the detective work. They're doing the settings, but they're not doing the detective work that RVTs are doing. And so it's just so critical. I mean, a vascular surgeon without an RVT is like a cardiologist without a stethoscope or an echo. You know, we, we just can't do our job without good imaging. Well, thanks for saying that. I couldn't agree more. But also it's you. It's the physicians who are taking the time to collaborate and explain and do QA. And I just can't say that enough that we have to keep working as a team together. And, you know, this test for imaging pelvic venous disorder is hard. (laughs) It can be Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. tricky and it takes time and practice and correlation and learning. And so it is definitely a challenging, advanced ultrasound that we need in our daily practice. Any other thoughts that you want to share about your advanced venous training or your thoughts on where ultrasound can go before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of exciting things that we're all learning about. And in the venous field, uh, much like CLTI, you know, there's new stuff. And so part of it that doesn't have to do with pelvic pain is like looking at venous flow, inflow, what is adequate inflow in a post-thrombotic limb to keep a stent open? We don't know, but there's got to be an answer. And we're probably going to figure it out with ultrasound is what my thought is. So there's things like that coming out that are exciting or kind of this flow pattern that I was talking about when you see a big dilated right ovarian vein and kind of sleuthing back. The right ovarian vein shouldn't be big. And if it's big and anagrade, there's a pressure gradient somewhere and figuring that out and kind of having some description, maybe at some point we'll get some ultrasound about like, Low velocity across the pelvis means this or doesn't mean this, you know, things like that. We're really at a frontier and it's very interesting and exciting. And I think the more we can do less invasive imaging on, I mean, these are young patients. They don't need to have CTs over and over again in their life. We want to kind of learn how to figure things out with ultrasound as much as possible. And the more people we get excited about this, the more we're going to learn. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll let you get on with your day, but I just want to say thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast. You are an amazing physician, and I'm honored to be on this with you. So thank you so much. Well, likewise, Jill, and thank you for all you do educating everyone. It's uh, been a delight to be here this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. 
Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 